Well, good evening, everyone. Grace and peace. It is good to see y'all tonight. Um, before we get into uh, our study, I have a question for you to ponder. Um, I wonder if you're anything like me. I had an older sister. And one of the ways that I found that I could thrive, survive, and even thrive in my family is to look to my older sister and not do what she did. <laughs> did you have any of those? Any siblings like that? Right? Um, no, never, Kurt. I mean, we're the preachers, right? We wouldn't do anything like that. So, um, and probably some of that was unhealthy, but for the most part, it caused me to kind of focus in and say, okay, the choices and decisions that she is making is leading her to trouble, right? I did not want to be in trouble. And so I paid attention and I adjusted my behavior accordingly. Um, one might say that I uh, humbled myself, right? Because of my sister's prideful behavior. Can I say that? Or does that sound really bad? <laughs> and you're going to see why I told that story uh, later on tonight when we get into chapter 23 of uh, Ezekiel. But as I was pondering that, it really draws me back to, I think, my favorite psalm. Uh, psalm 131, it's short. But just think, we're going to be talking about two sisters tonight in Ezekiel. If that second sister would have just taken David's approach here, how things could have been different for her. So in preparation for that, let's pray. Our hearts are not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. We do not concern ourselves with great matters or things too wonderful for us. But we have calmed and quieted ourselves. We are like weaned children with our mother. Like weaned children, we are content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Amen. Big ones. Yeah, it's just, it's dead. All right. Congratulations. We're almost to the summit of this incredible journey we've been taking. We've got only one more chapter after this one of the hardship, the death of the old life. You have been through the most painful part of the entire Bible. So if you've managed to make it, congratulations. This is hard stuff. Remember, we have sat in with a parent that has gone through rehab with their children to get them off of heroin. It's been ugly. We've seen the depths of humanity's evil. We've seen God's pain in a way that I don't think you see again until Jesus dies on the cross. This has been really, really hard stuff. Tonight is a special if, again, very painful chapter, I almost can guarantee you've never heard it. It's almost never talked about. But it is one of the most 
evocative, demonstrative, visceral chapters in all of the Bible. Imagine a night in the therapy when the parent sits down with a child and the parent says, I love you. You have a future now. You're going to get better. We're going to build a new life together. But before we say the final goodbye to your old life, you now, hopefully as more of an adult, need to hear from me what your time of heroin has done to me. Now, God has done this once before in a little different setting. Remember the baby born in the field and you were my wife. He's going to change metaphors a little bit about two sisters. And he's going to tell this story. And it is beyond shocking. And I've sort of gone back and forth with you all how much of this to share. <laughs> and I'm not going to share anymore. Don't worry. Um, the, the language the used in this is screaming, is using vulgar words that if we anywhere got near an actual translation, you would, you would be shocked that God's using such language. But it's important that you hear this, that as much as God loves us, he feels when we sin, when we make mistakes, when we destroy our lives, when we hurt other people. He is not some unmoving force that doesn't care. He loves deeply and he hurts deeply. And so that's what you're going to get tonight. So we're going to try something a little bit different. I think Steve is actually going to read the entire chapter. It's a little bit long, but I think you sort of need to hear it. You know, again, you're a recovering child from sin. You've let your old life die. And you need just to hear from your parents' perspective what, what has happened. Before we launch into that, though, there's one just little housekeeping thing, and it's really my own hobgoblins in my mind. We have... Uh, names of these two sisters. So if you look uh, quickly, chapter 23, um, just to cover the beginning here. This message came to me from the Lord, son of man. Once there were two sisters who were daughters of the same mother. They became prostitutes in Egypt. Even as young girls, they allowed themselves to be fondled and caressed. The oldest girl's was named Ohola. And her sister was named Ohola Va. I married them, and they bore me sons and daughters. So there is importance to these names. And this is sort of the tragedy of not doing the kind of biblical studies that we should. I've been uh, on my own going through a, a box of family heirlooms. Uh, found some incredible treasures in there. I hadn't seen them in years. They've been in my garage for a while. I've moved them, but I sort of getting them out and, and reacquainting myself with them. Um, and there's a lot of pictures of family members. And I got to one group of photos, and they're from World War II, which always excite me. Um, you know, just the history of all that. But for the life of me, I don't know who they are. My grandmother and grandfather are dead. My mother and my aunt are gone. I have no surviving cousins that remember this. And there's got to be a story to them. Why did they keep these photos? Who were these people? I, 
I mean, I, I don't get into my family history, but I have, I have a guess, but I, I don't know. And in a sense, there's nobody alive that can tell me. Most of the time when we do biblical things from multiple angles, we can figure things out. But this is one of the things we've lost. These names are not real names. There is significance to them, and there was a, a parallel they were trying to make them. Uh, they rhyme a little, so it's like twiddle and twiddle-dum. It's a little bit like that. We find out in just a second, one of them is Samaria. And there's the same number of syllables in Ohola as Samaria, Shamar. And then Oholava, which is Jerusalem. But we don't understand what the names mean. I mean, as I translate these and others, it's something about a tent, something about her tent, and her tent, or the tent in her, we, we, we just don't get it. Um, this maybe is a marriage tent. I, I, that, that's as far as we go. So this kind of stuff breaks my heart because this is something important, a word of God that we've lost. And I don't know how we're ever going to recover this unless we find some reference uh, from an earlier source that explains it. But... As far back as we go in any source, Jewish or Christian, nobody knows what these names meant. I think that represents how often we go to this chapter. And that's a bad thing. This is a hard conversation. But from parent to child, we sometimes have to have these hard conversations. So we're almost to the top. Let's, uh, let's have our narrator over here. So I want to ask you to, instead of following along in your text, I want, you, I want you to stay awake. So I want you to make a commitment to staying awake, all right, and, but not following along, maybe closing your eyes and uh, just allowing the story, allow yourself to hear the story. It is going to be raw. It is going to be difficult to hear, but just kind of let it sink down into your soul, and then we will do our best unpack it for you on the other side. Ezekiel chapter 23. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man. There were two women, daughters of the same mother. They became prostitutes in Egypt, again engaging in prostitution from their youth. In that land, their breasts were fondled and their virgin bosoms caressed. The older was named Ohola and her sister was named Oholiva. They were mine and gave birth to sons and daughters. Ohola is Samaria, and Oholiva is Jerusalem. Ohola engaged in prostitution while she was still mine. She lusted after her lovers, the Assyrian, the Assyrians, warriors clothed in blue, governors and commanders, all of them handsome young men and mounted horsemen. She gave herself as a prostitute to all of the elite of the Assyrians and defiled herself with all the idols of everyone she lusted after. She did not give up the prostitution she began in Egypt when during her youth men slept with her, caressed her virgin bosoms, and poured out their lust on her. Therefore, I delivered her into the hands of her lovers, the Assyrians, for whom she lusted. They stripped her naked, 
took away her sons and daughters and killed and killed her with the sword. She became a byword among women and punishment was inflicted on her. Her sister Oholivah saw this. Yet in her lust and prostitution, she was more depraved than her sister. She too lusted after the Assyrians, governors and commanders, warriors in full dress, mounted horsemen, all handsome young men. I saw that she too defiled herself. Both of them went the same way. But she carried her prostitution still further. She saw men portrayed on a wall. Figures of the Chaldeans portrayed in red with belts around their waist and flowing turbans on their heads. All of them looked like Babylonian chariot officers, natives of Chaldea. As soon as she saw them, she lusted after them and sent messengers to them in Chaldea. Then the Babylonians came to her, the bed of love, and in their lust they defiled her. After she had been defiled by them, she turned away from them in disgust. When she carried on her prostitution openly and exposed her naked body, I turned away from her in disgust, just as I had turned away from her sister. Yet she became more and more promiscuous. As she recalled the days of her youth when she was a prostitute in Egypt, there she lusted after her lovers whose genitalia were like those of donkeys and whose emissions was like that of horses. So you longed for the lewdness of your youth when in Egypt your bosom was caressed and your young breast fondled. Therefore, Olo Levah, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will stir up your lovers against you, those you turned away from in disgust, and I will bring them against you from every side the Babylonians and all Chaldeans, the men of Pekod and Shoah and Koah and all the Assyrians with them, handsome young men, all of them governors and commanders, chariot officers and men of high rank, all mounted on horses. They will come against you with weapons, chariots and wagons and with a throng of people. They will take up positions against you on every side with large and small shields and with helmets." I will turn you over to them for punishment, and they will punish you according to their standards. I will direct my jealous anger against you, and they will deal with you, deal with you in fury. They will cut off your noses and your ears, and those of you who are left will fall by the sword. They will take away your sons and daughters, and those of you who are left will be consumed by fire. They will also strip you of your clothes and take your fine jewelry. So I will put a stop to the lewdness and prostitution you began in Egypt. You will not look on these things with longings or remember Egypt anymore. For this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am about to deliver you into the hands of those you hate, to those you turned away from in disgust. They will deal with you in hatred and will take away everything you have worked for. They will leave you stark naked and the shame of your prostitution will, will be exposed. Your lewdness and promiscuity have brought this on you because you lusted after the nations and defiled yourself with idols. You have gone the way of your sister, so I'll put her cup into your hand. 
This is what the sovereign Lord says. You will drink your sister's cup, a large and deep, a cup large and deep. And I will bring scorn and derision, for it holds so much. You will be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, the cup of ruin and desolation, the cup of your sister Samaria. You will drink it and drain it dry and chew on its pieces, and you will tear your breast. I have spoken, declares the Sovereign Lord. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, since you have forgotten me and turned your back on me, you must bear the consequences of your lewdness and prostitution. The Lord said to me, Son of man, will you judge Oholah and Oholivah and then confront them with their detestable practices? For they have committed adultery and blood is on their hands. They committed adultery with their idols. They even sacrificed their children whom they, whom they bore to me as food for them. They have also done this to me. At the same time, they defiled my sanctuary and desecrated my Sabbaths. On the very day they sacrificed their children to their idols, they entered my sanctuary and they desecrated it. That is what, what they did in my house. They even sent messengers for men who came from far away. And when they arrived, you bathed yourself for them, applied eye makeup, and put on your jewelry. You sat on the elegant couch with a table spread before it on which you had placed the incense and olive oil that belonged to me. The noise of a carefree crowd was around her. Drunkards were brought from the desert along with men from the rabble, and they put bracelets on, their, on the wrist of their women and her sisters and beautiful crowns on their heads. Then I said about the one worn out by adultery, now let them use her as a prostitute. For that is all she is. And they slept with, her, slept with her. As men sleep with prostitutes, so they slept with those lewd women, Ohola and Oholiva. But righteous judges will sentence them to punishment of women who commit adultery and shed blood, because they are adulterous and blood is on their hands. This is what the Sovereign Lord says. Bring a mob, mob against them and give them over over to terror and plunder. The mob will stone them and cut them down with their sword. They will kill their sons and daughters and burn down their houses. So I will put an end to the lewdness in the land that all women may take warning and not imitate you. You will suffer the penalty for your lewdness and bear the consequences of your sins of, of idolatry. Then you will know that I am the Sovereign Lord. <sighs> so God was pretty excited, pretty angry, pretty upset. He repeated a theme quite readily. He had two wives, two daughters, and they filled their life with prostitution and murder. Now this is a metaphor of sorts, but it's important that we get this. So what is the prostitution that he's so mad at? What is it that they learned in Egypt? 
to worship idols. That's, that's the beginning of the conversation, right? That's like you're, you ask your kid, what'd you do? Bad things. Okay, yeah, I know that. But what did you do? So, uh, again, Sunday school answer, well, you worshiped idols. I'm going to go out and limb here and, and really say God doesn't get that hot and bothered uh, about a stone statue. That's, it's stupid, and he makes fun of it, but there's acts behind that that he's really upset with to the point that he's having this. So, again, this is a repeated theme we've been through. What, what is it that he's so angry? And we've got two things, prostitution and murder, right? The murder part's easy. Who have they murdered? Their own kids. And you, you heard it. Did your heart just, just want to burst out of your chest when he said, the day you killed your own children, you came into my temple? And you thought I didn't know that? You, you thought you could bring their blood into me? and we wouldn't have no repercussions. Again, this is a parent telling a child, I have seen every unbelievable act you've ever made in order to get your drugs, in order to satisfy whatever new boyfriend you've had. I've seen it all, and it's killed me a thousand times. So we really got to get this prostitution thing. He tells them, you learned it in Egypt, and they were slaves in Egypt. He's even very visceral and saying, it started when you were young. Really, before you were of age, you were allowing yourself to be molested. This is how ingrained it has become in you, and it's, it's a problem. So it's not sexual misbehavior, as I think it will come to be with the Canaanites. It's this fundamental understanding of the world, of God, and the way things work. The, the idolatry part is really about manipulation. If you think, I do something for God, and he does something for me. It's the same kind of thing with when a soldier comes to town. As, as a young lady, is it really good to go out and meet the soldiers? Honestly, no. It's never been. Because the soldiers want one thing. And that's what God has been trying to say. And you go and do that with the soldiers, thinking that your life is going to get better. You have this exchange mindset. If you do something for them, they'll do something for you. And this is sort of the place that we've existed that God's desperately trying to, to break. And I would dare say it's not so far from some of the ways we act as Christians. We make deals with God. If I do this for you, God, will you do this for me? If I give so much money to the church, will I get this? As a pastor, if I serve you, God, will I get special treatment? That's not the kind of loving relationship that God intended. Again, follow his metaphor. He has a wife. He intends to love that wife, to bless her, to give her things. He's done it several times when he talks about, I'll give you the finest jewelry. I'll give you the finest incense, perfumes, clothing, stuff that you don't need, but I'll just bless you with it because we have a relationship. We love each other. We talk and we grow. But you have this propensity 
to turn it into some sort of manipulation. That if somebody loves you, they'll give you something. And it's, it's become the perversion of a marriage, which is prostitution. I don't have the time, and I probably don't want to really, explain to you all the ways that this, this system worked. So I'm just going to try to show it to you a little bit. This is actually a scene of an Egyptian funeral for a god. So Egyptians have so, so many gods. But this is the uh, Apis bull from Memphis. Memphis is where the pyramids are, oldest capital of Egypt. They had a creator god in Memphis called Ta. And they believed that Ta incarnated in the power of a bull. So each generation, there was the strength of this god incarnate, like Jesus was incarnate, in the form of a special bull. So they would go around the country and they would look for certain marks on the bull. It had to have a star on its forehead. It had to have a scarab on its uh, tongue. It had to have a blanket on its back, sort of like you're, you're looking for the best cattle. And when they found this cow, they would bring it to a special palace that was built for a cow. And then this cow would have all the servants it wanted. In fact, there were two twins they would search the country for. Now, twins are rare in any society. But ancient societies, when it was really, really hard to deliver children, twins were exceptionally rare that survived. But they would search the country, and they would find twin girls that would serve this bull through the course of its life. This bull had cooks. It had seamstresses, it had guards, it had dancers, it had priests. And the Egyptian thinking was, as long as we take care of this bull, then the God whose strength this bull belongs to will do what we want. He'll give us good floods with the Nile. We'll have plenty of crops. Our wives will have children. Our country will be a superpower. We'll stay on top. So again, it's this... This magic exchange, if you will, because as I influence one part of the God, it affects the God. And this thinking is, is in Israel's mind. We know archaeologically when we dig up their houses, there's little idols in the houses. Not that they really believe that God is this little idol, but they think it's a little bit of God. So if they influence, they give food to the idol, it's giving food to God, and he owes you something. People that give you bread have control of your life. It's their thinking. So let me just show this video. I hope you see how absurd it really is. I like to call this an Egyptian barbecue, right? You're going to see some funny dancers with baskets on their heads. These are actually called moo, um, which is a joke. Um, they're moo dancers for the bull. So here, here's it. Blue or green is the morning color in Egypt. So what happens when you rip clothes? The funeral has begun. They gave the god boo dancers because why not? Scripture readers, what does this remind you of? Yes, 
Taos and Tagis, the bull's sacred twins, take their place in the procession to Saqqara. So they're in mourning because the god is dead. That's why their hair's messed up. They have ashes on their head. for a second so just just feel that for a minute they're walking down the street with a gold covered what cow yeah a bull so from God's perspective you have to sort of go uh, I gave you that to eat not worship you know you can make some really cool sandals out of that if you knock yourself out belts really really good but God, not so much. What, what is wrong with you? What, why do you allow the Egyptians to teach you this game that you think because you give a dead bull to slave girls, you do a little parade for it? Uh, it, it shows it later in the video. They actually bring food for it. They have little food coverings. It's like a, a girl in her Barbie doll. And this is not one temple doing it. This is an entire country. And a country that's seen, and truly in terms of power, was, was a superpower, was incredibly powerful. The, the amount of material wealth that the Egyptians had rivaled anybody in the ancient world. So the Hebrews, Israelites grew up with this. And they think, man, we got a poor God. He just, the desert God, he gave us some rules. He doesn't have anything cool. Uh, we, we want a temple, but it's not going to be like an Egyptian temple, which is a, a massive economic engine, a massive cultural center. Uh, it's, it, it, it's, it's a mansion literally for the God. So you add everything you possibly can to it. God's temple was a place of sacrifice and a place where his name resided. It wasn't a big mansion for the God. So this, this hard world mindset was everywhere. In terms of culture, Israel will, we've, we've looked at it with the maps, she's always going to be sandwiched in between much larger powers. So she comes out of Egypt. Very quickly, there's Assyrians to the north, and they're a superpower. And so you'll see Assyria try, or Israel try to appease Assyria. Well, maybe the Assyrian gods are powerful. We've got to make peace treaties with them. So when we make a peace treaty, we have to be able to move their god into our god's house so they get along and we can get along, so okay. And when we look at the, what little there is, but the material culture from Israel, you can see they go through periods where sometimes they're imitating Egyptian art, they really don't have a form of their own. Later, they'll imitate Assyrian art. This is so bad that, I was talking to the kitchens the other day, the Hebrew that we read today, the letters in the Hebrew come from the Assyrians. It's called the Ashuri script, meaning the Assyrian script. So they stopped using their own native alphabet, which is proto-Hebrew, 
which is what I love. I'd love to find a copy of Scripture in that because it's pretty close to the original. But anyway, the modern Hebrew that we look at is a Syrian script. We'll see them change their own language to the Babylonian language. So think of it. They stopped speaking the language that God gave them at Mount Sinai. They no longer speak the language of Moses, of David. The Psalms are foreign to them because they learn the language of their new masters. And in fact, Aramean or Aramaic from the Aramean people will be the language that they continue to speak all the way through the first century. So Jesus's native tongue is the Babylonian language. So God's not kidding. You meet, in a sense, a new boyfriend every couple of years, and you let him abuse you and beat you and treat you terrible, and you act like him. You don't come home to me. You don't come back to the things that I taught you. You've corrupted yourself over and over and over and over. And this is what has led to the death, in a sense, of this life. Cannot let it go on. You think you can manipulate your way in, into a better life. And let me just say this, and I'll, I'll pass it off. Have you ever known an addict? I mean, really known an addict. An alcoholic, drug addict, maybe a gambling addict. They always have an excuse, don't they? They constantly play on your emotions to give them one more chance. God has seen this for generations. The addiction is worse than heroin. It's evil. It's our desire to be God, to control, to manipulate. This has to die, and it is going to. As, as a nation, Israel is going to shed this, and they're going to come out of it a, a different people altogether. God has not given up. He has a remnant that he keeps. But he needs this addict to, to die. Um, just like he says in the New Testament that we have to die to ourself so that Christ can live within us. This has been done on a national scale. So let me pass it off. Anybody have any questions on anything that you heard? That you said, hmm. We didn't think it was too challenging as for what we have been through today to kind of catch on what, what God is trying to do here. It's almost like he is saying that Judah had an advantage and that they could see their older sister and how things went with her. And they didn't pay any attention to her. I think we miss it. There's this haunting scripture in uh, 1 Samuel, early chapters of 1 Samuel. And uh, it's, it's what ultimately leads to uh, Israel's ruin uh, all the way around. It's when they say this, we want a king so that we can be like all the other nations around us. And that's one of the things that you kind of read between the lines in this passage is like, remember, Israel was lifted up by God, beginning with Abraham, to be a blessing to who? To the nations, right? 
And they're saying, no, we're not going to do that. We just want to be like you. Because it's like this sense that they are being more blessed than we are. And so they become envious of what they have as opposed to being thankful for what they've been given. And this connection, this relationship with God. And as Kurt is masterfully unpacked for us this whole idea of life with the gods based on, what was the word? Manipulation. What is the alternative? Trusting relationship, right? That going all the way back to the garden, what did Adam and Eve, what was their failure? Their failure was not to be thankful for what God was giving them in God's time, but they took what was not theirs to take, right? And so that's the big question, I think, that's, that's out here. In what ways do we conform to the culture that is around us and that we look around and we say, oh, that's got to be better there's no way I can get along without this or get by without this, right? And I think it's very easy because we, we live in a quote-unquote Christian nation or used to be a Christian nation. And so surely our nation espouses biblical values. So we're in the middle of this series of sermons on being priests, Right, and one of the primary things that the priests do in the, in the Old Testament, and then how Jesus takes it on full bore, is that that we mediate forgiveness, God's forgiveness to others. Just tell me how forgiving the culture is right now. No. Instead, the value of the culture is to cancel that you don't belong, you are not worthy of forgiveness, so we'll cancel you. And how do we kind of jump on board with that? For people that we disagree with, people that we become in conflict with, we don't shine this light, this bright light of forgiveness. It is the thing that holds our communities together. Because guess what? We all make mistakes. We all screw up. We all do things that we wish we could take back. And so if we cancel, it breaks down community. But if we work, everybody say work. If we work towards forgiveness, community is saved and new life is birthed. So that's our calling, right? Our calling is to, to be the light of God in our community, to conform our community to the values of God and not allow the community to form us and to shape us into its values. Thoughts, questions? As you were reading that, I noticed over and over again, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. And 
I found kind of three different sections just repeated themselves. And it was, we, we see it all through the Bible, but he tells them, and he tells them again, and he tells them a third time. Yeah, and and the, the phrasing, sovereign Lord, we should have gone through this. He, he's invoking his name, Yahweh, but the sovereign element is the most official proclamation he can make. So not that anytime God says something, it's not important, but especially that phraseology is, uh, this is gospel. I don't know how to say it in English, but he is dead serious. Um, and that's, that's what he's really trying to get across to us. So this is about 600 years of history. Uh, maybe closer to seven. That Israel went through. We know God thinks about all the other nations too. He doesn't have the kind of relationship with them yet uh, that he will uh, at the beginning of the New Testament, but uh, they they will be judged. He, he doesn't have the same standard for them. Uh, it's a much lower standard and they can't live up to it, but he, he still thinks about them. So I would just pose this question. What would the parable of our nation look like if we were the third daughter, the adopted daughter that he raised? How have we done? <sighs> yeah, I, I really... I, I, sometimes we've been amazing. Sometimes we've been terrible. Do we get influenced by other cultures, other religions? I mean, what happened in the 60s when we all went to India, right? And, oh, everything from India was is, is the Eastern way to thinking. When Steve and I started ministry, you still found pastors that were stuck in that world. And I thought, <sighs> one famous pastor from New Mexico, where I was from, had been a Buddhist monk. And then he became a Methodist pastor. And I thought, hmm. Uh, if there was a lot of repentance that went on in that, uh, maybe good. But it's just, we, we've been swayed. And, and we continue, right? Um, we've got to keep up with TikTok. We've got to keep up with, and I'm, I'm not saying we have to be afraid of technology, but there's lots of ideas in the world, but very few of them are of God. And the people that are supposed to be able to distinguish all of that are us. God says, can't you just come home sometimes? Can't we work in our relationship instead of you trying to entertain whatever man comes down the street and tickles your fancy? In a crazy way, God does have this kernel, this seed, this, this precious remnant and realize, you know, whose ancestors are in that, right? Joseph, uh, Mary, Peter, uh, Paul, all of these, this core that he's keeping alive. He's, he's going to let the old die, bring forth this, and, and change the world with it. He, he, in a sense, is, like we said, birthing the Messiah, birthing this next generation. So there's, there's incredible beauty in it. But we can't forget the danger that he was trying to bury in this old world because it is as deadly for us today as it was back then. Any other comments, questions, worries? 
All right. Party thoughts? Be careful. Be careful when your uh, middle-aged and junior high kids say, Mom and Dad, I'm going to read through the Bible. Uh-oh. Right? And that's a great thing. But you may need to be prepared when they get to Ezekiel 23 to, to read it with them. Uh, right? Because it's, it's very, very heavy. Uh, they can handle it uh, with your help. Uh, but uh, that's just a free aside. No other questions? All right, we're going to be done early tonight. A lot of people tell me, I've read through the Bible. I'm like, if you've read through the Bible, there, there's a couple of things that probably grabbed your attention. Um, did you? And it's hard to read, for sure. It, it does. But um, this is why we do together, and we ask for a lot of help from the Holy Spirit. So let's pray. Father our God, thank you that you love us. And that you have real feelings. Father, forgive us for the times that we have hurt you. For we know we've been just as wayward as your first children were. Father God, help to break that cycle in our mind. That we can manipulate you, others. We can cheat and lie our way to the top. Father God, our life is good. Because you are good. Help us to try to reflect that in the relationships that we have with others. May it be good because you've been good to us. We do pray for our nation and all nations that the stories would not end like they do in this chapter in Ezekiel. But from all people, you would bring this remnant forth to birth a new generation That is, one people. One people that call on the name of Christ. No matter what country we originate from, we become subjects of the kingdom of Christ. Help us to strive for the day that we will be reunited with you in heaven. Not a day that we need to fear or worry about, because all of the darkness, the horror, the things that we can do will be left behind. The things that you can do, the things of love, forgiveness, Restitution, resurrection will become our future. So let the old pass and the new live strong. In all things, O Lord, we will praise you. For as the sovereign Lord says, we will seek to make real. In your son's holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Yes, we know.